My name is Anthony Fatsis and welcome to the What The Finance podcast, where we interview finance, trading, investing experts to help you understand current market trends and learn about the intricacies of new and existing assets. Correction that will occur, and this has been going on like this for centuries, has always been massive rupture, massive corrections. So this is a fear, right, that indeed we create our own virtual world, metaverse, right? We are in the spirit of creating our virtual worlds, disconnected from the laws of physics, the laws of supply-demand, of, of, of really, you know, uh, the, the stock flow consistent um, processes in economics, which can work for a while. It's an illusion of the perpetual money machine, but then the laws of physics become come back with a, with a fury, with anger, with anger, and then it's very, very painful. So, yeah, what do we prefer? To live in this uh, dream, illusion world, illusionary world, and then there will be maybe World War III, maybe a very, very big uh, uh, problems, maybe in 10 years. Or are we ready to take the, bite the pill, right? Buy, bite the, the, the solution, which will be painful, but spread over time. I fear the first one will be what will happen. On this episode of What the Finance Podcast, I have the pleasure of welcoming on Didier Sonnet, who's Professor Emeritus uh, of ETH Zurich, uh, as well as a professor in uh, Shenzhen in China uh, at, at a university. Uh, he's also a French researcher, really studying uh, complex systems and risk management, looking at financial crises and, and other crises as well. So Didier, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. It's a pleasure. And I really look forward to uh, talking with you because... You've been look, researching a lot about, I guess, how, how can we predict crises? It's something that people think is impossible. So I guess from your perspective, uh, is it possible to predict crises, I guess, specifically financial crises? Yeah. So um, what I'm, I'm going to do is to speak as a scientist, So, which means that I'm not going to claim any truth, but be prudent in the sense that I am going to state hypotheses, which I, let's say, support with a lot of evidence. But there's always, you know, the criticism that is possible. Okay, so my hypothesis is indeed that most, if not all, crises of catastrophes do not come out of the blue, but proceed through a significant, long, lengthy preparation process. So that if you, and, you know, it's like a maturation towards a, um, towards, towards an instability, towards, uh, in a jargon term, towards a bifurcation actually a catastrophe uh, in a mathematical sense of catastrophe theory or also a tipping point that's another way to 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 name it right or phase transition as we would say in physics these do not come like a surprise for those who are prepared to look at the correct let's say metrics and diagnostic points if you of course scroll your eyes like you know the famous three monkeys and your ears and your mouth uh, it will be a surprise I would say that in that sense, you know, I, I am totally opposite to Nassim Taleb with the black swan. And in this way, I have actually coined the hypothesis of the dragon king. The dragon king is uh, supposed to uh, put on fire the black swan uh, in the following sense. The dragon king refers to two concepts. The king is um, an animal or an, an entity which is beyond the normal uh, citizen. Uh, for example, you have the king effect in wealth distribution. 
which uh, correspond to the fact that there is an entity which owns much more than the distribution of the rest of the of the citizens. The dragon term uh, refers to the fact that this animal is an uh, endowed endowed with different properties, right? And indeed, the point we have, and I have documented in many instances, um, uh, empirically with uh, rigorous statistical tests, and we develop also a series based on und understood mechanism, that most crises of importance are of this dragon king nature, meaning they are special, they are outliers, uh, in the statistical sense, they 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 look very different in their size, in their consequences, but also in their underlying mechanism that that uh, lead to their occurrences. So, if you and if you um, are with me in this concept, you realize that the corollary of this uh, concept is that they are telling signs, so weak signals as we call them, or specific. So, I have in my research documented maybe a dozen of different diagnostic, which are not all present, that we can look at and continuously monitor in order to see a crisis coming. And this applies to many different varied systems from epileptic seizures, you know, quakes of the brain, to, of course, earthquakes, uh, catastrophic uh, rupture in the earth's crust, to obviously um, development of bubbles and their, their birth in the form of crashes, to maybe epidemics also, to bio political crisis, to health crisis, in addition to just the uh, epileptic seizures. So, and I can go on, there are many examples. Okay, it's really interesting. So I guess the challenge is trying to find those preluding indicators to, to be aware of for those different examples that you've provided. Yes, exactly. And so um, in order to be guided towards this goal, um, I often refer to, uh, so I apologize if uh, I use the jargon a bit of mathematics. There is a so-called reduction theorem, which is one of the most beautiful and more powerful theorem in mathematics, which is the, the following, I would say it in a layman term. So essentially any complex system, we, we, you know, we are, we are ourselves a complex system. Complex system means essentially that um, a system is made of many elements, which are relatively simple, each of them, but are constantly interacting, and their interplay leads to the emergence of superior or higher levels of organization. Like, for example, standard example, neurons, you have 85 to 100 billion neurons, each of them relatively simple, but the, the total gives, you know, what we're doing, speaking, thought, consciousness, and so on. Okay, so... Um, the reduction theorem says that in a complex system, most of the time, the system is not predictable. It's like you are flying a plane as a pilot in the fog. You see nothing. It's unpredictable. But and the beauty of it is that when you approach a critical point, a tipping point, a bifurcation, you know, this transition, the dragon king, then it's like getting out of the fog and you are in clear sky and you see the mountain you are going to crash against. So this is actually, okay, the layman version of a rigorous theorem says, saying that when you approach to such a catastrophe, there's a reduction of dimensionality for billions of variables to only a few. And there's only a few, like 16 normal forms, so 16 equations that describe all possibilities that guide you on what you should look at. So, so, so science and mathematics and uh, complex system science has advanced a lot and I am always a bit sad to see that, you know, about the gap between this understanding and the defense of decision makers, 
um, you know, managers and so on who like Ponce Pilate wash their hand and say, we did not know. Uh, we could not say anything, and it's not my responsibility. And one part of my research has been trying to demonstrate that these guys have a huge responsibility. But uh, unfortunately, there is a conflict of interest. Uh, it's so easy to say, we did not see it. It's a wrath of God. And so on. like, you know, many crises, like 2000, 2008 crisis, which was, you know, led to the Great Depression, uh, fantastic pain for millions, hundreds of millions of people around the world and so on. It's so easy to say, well, it's not my fault. It's not the policy. We, we could not, nobody could see it. It's wrong. A few pundits, a few persons were crying about or were shooting about the sign, the tell sign. There were obvious evidence. I even myself actually wrote a letter to the then federal chairman Greenspan in 2005. I was a person at UCLA telling him that we had technology showing sign of the non-sustainability of the real estate market in the US, which, as you know, uh, was the framework on which all the collateral debt obligation, all the to toxic trenches were built, and which when the real estate uh, price start to plateau and then to go down, led to the cascade of uh, what we know happened. But no, it's so so much uh, easier to say we don't know, we didn't, and then I don't have any responsibility. So I think this is wrong, and you need knowledge, uh, should give rise to responsibility and people hide behind this veil of ignorance, which science now should demonstrate is not acceptable anymore. Yeah, it's fascinating to see uh, to hear. So if we, if we go to 2008 um, and you said you were sort of seeing these signs that there was risk in the market, specifically the housing market. So I don't know if you can go, I know it was quite long ago, but if you can go more into, um, I, I guess, what you were seeing then, and then maybe after that we can go into recent times. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so one, I mean, the, the main, I would say, concept that uh, is uh, underlying all this is a concept called co positive feedback, uh, or also known in finance as pro-cyclicality. Uh, positive feedback is obviously the opposite of negative feedback. Let me give an example. Negative feedback, you have a population of rabbits uh, eating grass in a valley, uh, as the population of rabbits grows, right, the population grows and eats more grass, the, the, the food starts to be missing. And then there is a negative feedback of more population, um, of course, decimate the food, which itself gives rise to a decay and a collapse of the population. So there is a negative feedback uh, from the, the population on the, on the food and the food on the population. And this is stabilizing, right? Uh, eventually, the population will not continue to grow. It will stabilize. Positive feedback is the larger the population of rabbits, somehow, <laughs> the larger the food available, the larger the population of rabbits and so on. So it's continue to grow. So for rabbits, it's not possible. But by the way, as a clear documented empirical evidence, this um, example or this parable of the rabbits applies to humans. You may remember, and so I think it's a very nice illustration of this concept of positive feedback, that Malthus, in at the um, beginning of the 19th century, famously called for a huge problem of a danger of a population collapse because the population was growing exponentially, he said, while he claimed that the food availability was growing only linearly, so we would come to this problem of the rabbits and they would, okay. When you look at the data, you find actually positive feedback in the human population. 
What does it mean? The more people there are, the more innovative we are, the more we invent, the more we control different domains, special regions, and the more we also develop uh, fertilizer and so on and so on. So what you see as a consequence is that the growth of human population from the Middle Age to the peak of the growth rate was in 1960s, 64, has been super exponential. And I use this term because I'm going to uh, use it later on to explain the real estate and the financial market. So super exponential means faster than exponential. So a little bit, a little, of course, <laughs> a quick crash course on what is an exponential. Uh, when you invest in uh, in a bank or in finance, in, okay, you let's say one one hundred of some unit, one thousand pound or whatever. Um, and suppose you have ten percent interest rates, right? Ten ten percent growth rate or so. The next year you'll get one hundred and ten. Okay. Now the interest adds to it's like a population adds to the initial. The following year will not be 120. It will be 110 plus 10% of 110, which is 11. So it will be 121. And then year after year, you know, this initial linear growth is going to accelerate because, of course, um, a constant growth rate corresponds to an exponential growth, right? Explosive exponential growth. Um, now, super exponential means the growth rate grows itself. So the first year, so for example, and this is answering your question now, what was one of the clearest diagnostic of the non-sustainability of the real estate price dynamics was the fact that the price was super exponentially growing, meaning for, let's say, starting in 2003, maybe the growth rate for that year of the case Schiller index was 5%. Then, so exponential growth, that's 5% growth rate. So I insist for your auditor, a constant growth rate or constant interest rate is exponential growth. When the growth rate or the interest rate increases itself, it's super exponential. Okay, next year you had 10%, following year 20%, et cetera, right? And so this is and what uh, this is unsustainable. And when you actually solve mathematically this, um, this um, uh, dynamics, you find, again, uh, a, a mathematical term is called a finite time singularity. I like this term very much. Finite time singularity means what it means. It means that in finite time, you have a singularity. It means it's not, it's like a black hole singularity. You cannot go beyond this time. You have to cross like a black hole boundary and you go to another regime. Doesn't mean necessarily a collapse of the universe or anything like this. It just means that the growth is unsustainable and has to transit to another regime. Voilà. So the main concept is positive feedback. Positive feedback gives rise to super exponential growth. Super exponential growth gives rise to non-sustainability and to the, they say, diagnostic of an endpoint. That's how we predict time. There's a critical time, TC, at which the regime you are looking, you are living in, is going to break and transition to something else. Doesn't mean necessarily the end of the world. It just means the condition for the dynamics have developed and matured so much that it's not sustainable and there is a channel regime. And that's what we were seeing in 2005, very clearly, very cleanly. I remember we made a study in 2003 and we asked ourselves, do we see a problem in the real estate of US? And our conclusion at that time, no, not yet. 
we were doing the same thing for the UK. You're based in the UK, right? So, and we said, yes, in the, in the UK, very clear sign of a bubble, no sustainability. And actually it happened. Actually, there was two significant hiccups in the UK. The US took longer. And it's only in June 2005 when we revisit the data that we saw very clear signature. And we actually published a paper in, 2000, in June 2005, giving a timeline, a prediction that mid-2006 would be the time of the peak of the real estate market in the US, which happened. And then, of course, it took another year for the crisis to develop You know, with all the activity of the regulator, the decision maker, and so on to try to stabilize the system. But uh, that's it. Yeah, no, it's fascinating to hear. So I guess, I guess if we if we look what happened in 2008 and what, what maybe what's come from that, especially the financial world, um, beforehand there was the Greenspan put, there was this thought that, mm-hmm. you know, the Fed will go in and, and save markets. And now we've sort of had the other tools that they have. They have QE, they have, you know, this new tool where they can buy bonds at, at par. So, and it's something that we were talking about before where you're saying this zero risk game that a lot of people try to play. They try to do whatever they can to prevent all risk. So do you feel like maybe what the Fed's done and, and other people have done has been to try and reduce that volatility and the risk of these collapses as much as possible? And do you think that's a good thing? Yeah, that's, a, that's, no, it's not a good thing. <laughs> it's a bad thing. So uh, this is related to what we were discussing together before this, uh, this interview, which is a zero risk society. So the illusion that, um, yeah, actually, th- there is a term for this that you probably have, uh, many auditors have also read. This is called the great moderation. I don't know if you have heard about it. So this refers, so this is a term, um, I think that uh, Professor Lucas, a Nobel Prize winner, used it. And then Grins- uh, no, uh, Bernanke, the Federal Reserve Chairman Bernanke, who succeeded to, to Greenspan, um, and many others were and also Greenspan were congratulating themselves by actually characterizing the 25 years. Just so these are discourse and conferences and, and interview that they gave a few years before the 2008 crisis. And at the time, it's it's really like you know flying blind toward the mountain, right? So they were essentially congratulating themselves, saying, "Yeah, the 25 years, or I, I quote approximately." has been unheard of. These are the best 25 years in the US ever. We have seen, and we and also I looked at it also, but it's true, um, incredible low volatility in the growth of GDP, predictable. Uh, we mastered inflation, which became predictable and also with low volatility. Unemployment also has been mastered. And in the few years before the crisis, it was low with low volatility. Again, you know, very predictable. And also in finance, the financial market was pricing extremely low risk, low risk with very low implied volatility. So all indicators that, you know, economists, decision maker, federal chairman, all these guys, treasury secretary are, are looking at, we're t- telling them everything is for the best in the best of the world. For me, I was looking at another toolbox of indicators like these super exponential behaviors and and other things, and we are saying we are saying exactly the opposite. So we could say it was a calm before the tempest, right? Before the storm, and and one conclusion is one should be very careful at the metrics one looks at in order to make conclusion, right? It's like you know you you feel a bit bad, you go to the physician, you look to the hospital. And they and they don't actually look at the right variable, <laughs> and they say no, you're in perfect health. 
And then actually there is a hidden cancer that is eating you from the inside. That's exactly the analogy that I have in my mind to refer to the, the pre-2008 crisis. So, um, and of course, um, after the, during the development of the crisis, you had this QE, QE1 quantitative easing one, QE2, QE3, QE twist, QE infinity, you know, all this stuff. And you could see the financial market uh, rebounding each time there's a QE and then it exhausts itself and the next QE and so on. Um, has led indeed to the conclusion that uh, fashion market are not functioning anymore according to correct supply demand processes. They are in the hand of, uh, yeah, the Greenspan put, we could say the Federal Reserve put now since 2008. Um, so which leads to massive misallocation of resources. The zero interest rate or negative interest rate is okay, let's say, as an extraordinary measure short term, but conserved, you know, kept for years has led to, indeed, the risk-taking and the, the idea that uh, money was free, right? You could you can borrow, you know, you know many people, including myself, have benefited from this. Uh, for example, in my case, I have a 15-year loan, fixed interest, 0.5%. It's inimitable, right? It's free money, free money. And when you have free money, of course, um, you have debts that is ballooning uh, at, on the tune of $2 trillion uh, of debts per year for the US right now, right? And which now is a concern because the interest rate has gone from zero or negative to 5% short term. Uh, and 5% leads to uh, a total uh, change, uh, game change in many ways. And of course, it had led to the Silicon Valley Bank collapse and so on. And the big question with this big change of regime is, you know, I, I make an analogy with what we could call dynamic fishing. Uh, sorry, dynamite, dynamite fishing, you know, the bad behavior, you throw dynamite in the water, you kill all the fish, uh, and then they come up. Usually, it's all small fish that come belly up, but the big whales take a lot of time to emerge from the depths, right? And usually, it's big banks or big institutions, big health firms like LCTM, right, in uh, the crisis of 1998 with the Russian crisis, that default. And now we don't see big banks really defaulting or big institutions like Lehman Brothers or Benster and so on. Yeah, the Swiss, uh, the Silicon Valley Bank was big, but relatively minor actor, you know, in the big uh, network of banks. Actually, this is different. Now, the big fish or big whales are the Treasury and the Fed. They are selling. So let me explain. When you have a crisis like this, the institution that is in danger becomes price incentive, incentive. So it means that they are ready, they have to sell in order to balance their balance sheet and to uh, get their margin okay uh, at any price. Price incentiveness means like this. Who is price incentive now? The Fed and the Treasury of the US. They are selling on a tune of $220 billion a month, right? The Fed, in order to, go to, to do its quantitative um, um, tightening, right? And, uh, and the US Treasury, in order to fund its deficit, which are huge. And it's price incentive because they have to do it whatever the price. And of course, as you know, it has led to a drawdown, a peak to valley drop in uh, bond price, which is an almost unheard of in historical times. 
and it's comparable to the greatest crashes on the stock market for a so-called risk-free or low-risk investment vehicle. So this is another consequence of all this, uh, extrapolating on your question, which is, in my view, the view that fixed income is you know, low risk is dead. And investors have to completely reboot their thinking in terms of uh, uh, reassessing uh, how to diversify. Okay, so if you look at today, it sounds like we've gotten to that point where we're sort of going through a black hole and it's, a, it's almost like a new system, um, as you mentioned there before. Uh, are you seeing any indicators that maybe suggest that we could be going towards a crisis or is that not possible these days? Okay, crises are always possible. And of course, we see so many converging, uh, we could call exogenous stressors, you know, the Ukraine-Russian uh, war, the Chinese-US stand standoff, uh, now, of course, the Israel-Palestine um, war, um, and also the cascade with respect to Saudi, Iran, standoff, Israeli, uh, the so-called normalization that was, you know, developing that is going to be stopped. So, so many, and 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 also the consequence on energy, um, the fact that probably because of Iran backing of Palestine, uh, Hamas. Uh, is going probably sanction is going to be increased significantly against Iran. Iran has scaled up its production of oil in the last few years because of, of a kind of semi, um, yeah, like a kind of semi blind eye from the US, right? So you have you are going to have one 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 to two million um, barrel of oil per day of the market, maybe in the, very soon. Given the tightness of the oil production nowadays, uh, what so who is going to pay? Europe is going to suffer a lot because we are in a very bad position. Uh, big consumers like China also, but Europe is very weak in this in this respect, and we have many other vulnerabilities. So, when you say is there another crisis, we are just living through crisis. Of course, um, we may not feel it too much. I mean, we feel it through inflation, obviously. We feel it uh, through the news, the social media, and so on. Now, could it go to, you know, a level that would impact in your flesh, right? And uh, really close to you. I mean, it will. It impacts you with respect to your your buying power. Okay, so to the opportunities also. If you are young, right? If you or you're less young, whatever. When you look at job in opportunities in getting funding for your startup, all these are cascading, unfortunately. Uh, for example, venture capital is much tighter now, right? If you are you want to to even in the US, so all this cascade and um, so unfortunately, since two thousand eight, and my diagnostic is only strengthen year after year with you know, the succession of of crisis and mismanagement. In my opinion, is that unfortunately, uh, I would be blunt, there is a the impoverishment of ninety percent of the population. So this is the this small consequence of the central bank policies and the treasury policies. So I repeat, nine, nine zero, not 19, huh? 90% of the population is getting poorer. This is the progressive euthanasia of the middle class. Uh, and there are signs about it. I mean, we feel everywhere in France, we feel it every. I mean, I live in Switzerland, so I'm, of course, uh, it's a special paradise island of, of relative wealth and relatively good governance is the only working democracy really in the world, apart maybe from some Nordic countries. 
there is no president, there is no prime minister, there are seven councillors, they are much modest, there's really power in the end of the people at the bottom and so on. But apart from that, I see really a big pain more and more, unfortunately, for a vast majority of the population. It's like the proverbial frog, you know, in the pan where you eat the water progressively, and we are all in this situation, unfortunately. Uh, of course, it's much better for the top 1%, much, much better for the top 0.01% and so on. So the wealth inequality has been growing to a level which is an earth of the peak of inequality was in 1914, just a few months before the First World War, World War right? Um, then the two wars have been fantastic machines of destruction of infrastructure wealth and therefore level of the inequality. Uh, there have been scholars and, and academics who have indeed documented that the two great wars have been the main instruments for decreasing inequality, but in a bad way, by decreasing wealth of the halves. And then since 1980, inequality has grown a lot and is accelerating. And this is the consequence uh, in my analysis of all the policies that we see, which are, you could say, yeah, but what can we do else, right? So we are, which are done in order to kick the can down the road, right? To make lo small, as little ways as possible to keep the status quo. The problem is as we, no, it's, it's, I make an analogy, you know, suppose you see a person who is not in good shape, right? Is not eating healthy, is not drinking, is only drinking vodka, let's say, uh, is not exercising, you know, not healthy lifestyle. Okay. And, uh, you know, there's uh, inflammation, then chronic disease, and then there are more signs. And then, Okay, you could do two things. You could say, okay, continue living as you are, maybe add some whiskey to your regimen, which, by the way, is exactly what the policymaker did. I remember an op-ed by no else than Larry Summers, you know, Treasury Secretary of the U.S., President of Harvard uh, University for a while, who wrote, I remember in June, I was shocked. I think it was in Financial Times in June, an op-ed in June 2012. He said, I quote, the problem of the 2000 crisis and the subsequent uh, pain comes from too much finance, too much debts, too much money. Paradoxically, the solution for this is, please, more debts, more money, more liquidity. It's as if you would say to a guy who has a hangover of vodka, say, OK, now we're going to give you whiskey or bourbon or whatever in order to treat you. And this is actually what is going on. We are doubling, tripling on the problems and we are not attacking the issues at the core, which of course is politically suicide. I, I understand that because the politicians have this conflict of interest of you know um, pleasing the pop populace, the population getting elected and promising good, good times. If I come and say, well, you have um, been overfitting your obese, you are over drinking, now the pain. You are going to have to exercise to do 100 push-ups every day. You have to have pain, right? You have to squeeze your belly, you have to eat less, to hit LC, etc. It's not something you want to hear. And this is, unfortunately, the big problem of where what we are now. So I'm not very opti optimistic about the, the future. And the only, the only problem is that, you know, we can... So there's an interesting parallel between the laws of finance and economics and the laws of physics, right? If everybody believes that 
quantum mechanics is not true and classical mechanics is true, nature doesn't care. You know, physics will continue to function according to quantum mechanics or whatever, you know, uh, best representation. If everybody believes that classical mechanics is the law of financial market, the financial market will behave according to classical mechanics for a while, for maybe 10 years, for maybe 20 years. But because the financial market is coupled with the economy and the economy is, of course, in the end, coupled with physics, with all of nature, with production, supply chain, which are fundamentally the laws of nature, the self, the correction that will occur, and this has been going on like this for centuries, has always been massive rupture, massive corrections. So this is a fear, right, that indeed we create our own virtual world, metaverse, right? We are in the spirit of creating our virtual worlds disconnected from the laws of physics, the laws of supply demand, of, of, of really, you know, uh, the, the stock flow consistent um, processes in economics, which can work for a while. It's an illusion of the perpetual money machine, but then the laws of physics become come back with a, with a fury, with anger, with anger, and then it's very, very painful. So, yeah, what do we prefer? To live in this uh, dream, illusion world, illusionary world, and then there will be maybe World War III, maybe a very, very big uh, uh, problems, maybe in 10 years. Or are we ready to take the, buy the pill, right? Buy, bite the, the, the solution, which will be painful, but spread over time. I fear the first one will be what will happen. Yeah, so will that be fiscal responsibility from governments, the Fed keeping interest rates at a higher level so you can only invest in those positive, uh, exactly. those, you know, high ROI, exactly. those will be the key things to do. Exactly, exactly. Perfect. And then I guess if we look at those indicators, are there any, you, you mentioned so many things, are they all flashing red or are there any certain areas that you're seeing are flashing red at the moment? No, I, I would say from an investment point of view, um, of course, uh, avoid bonds, right? Avoid fixed income, especially from uh, from um, treasuries and from government bonds. But actually, those there are some fixed income that could be interesting from a international diversification. Is China, for example, or emerging countries? Because you know, you know, the bound Bundesbank, Bund right? The the Central Bank of of Germany has been for many decades the last defense of a rigorous you know uh, uh monetary policy and interest rate policy of course again the french in particular right always at the dismal <laughs> um, spirit of the french but now it's no more the german because they have endorsed you know relatively profit glassy and, and and spending and so on because they have to fund the energy transition which is also and by the way the energy transition is a huge drag with respect to uh, impoverishment of the of the of the of the population. Unfortunately, um, I think the 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 new central bank that is more equivalent to the Biden's bank in the old days is the China central bank. So they are really remunerating, uh, and they are more much more. They are not subject to inflation. There is no inflation in China, or very little, and so on. So they are much more. So there is interesting. Of course, there is the country risk. Of course, that's another thing. So you have to be, but there is a number of plays like Vietnam, Indonesia, maybe um, Brazil, which are quite interesting from an internal investor point of view uh, that I would consider also for stock. From, uh, but also invest in commodities, obviously, 
it's it's clear that uh, this is something that is going to be on on, on the scarcity level. So it's uh, so there are for investments or for investors um, uh, items that that can give uh, upside that can give good good return on the risk adjusted basis. But we have to see much more broadly on an international level. And of course, vastly diversified across different asset classes, but not the standard, you know, equity bond, Western developed markets, and so on. This is very worrisome. Yeah, it makes sense. So, will do you see the bond market potentially having a similar impact to what we saw in two thousand eight with the housing market? Yeah, it's already done. Huh? He has already had yeah. suffered the biggest drawdown almost in history, right? 50, 60%. Like a, it's a it's a stock market crash. <laughs> it's not a fixed income crash. So it's and, and when you see the trajectory, it's very parallel to some big crash in the stock market. So the question I think you have in mind is can it continue? <laughs> can it continue? That's one, of course, one scenario. Um, because the, the problem is. The Federal Reserve and other central banks have only, you know, very few instruments. You know, it's like one instrument to solve everything, like the interest rate, right? And of course, they have added all this money, um, the quantitative easing and so on, but they are also tied with, um, because the problem is, how can you fight against inflation and save the world? You know, that they saved the world in 2008 and then during COVID, right, by Flushing the system with free money, right? So, and buying actually uh, bonds, uh, treasury bonds, T bonds, so on, that nobody wanted anymore to buy, right? Uh, similar for the, the European Central Bank, similar with the Japanese Central Bank, right? Which in proportion was even bigger doing that and even manipulating the yield curve, right? And, and all this. So, how can you <laughs> flush a system with money and fight inflation at the same time? It's a, it's impossible. I mean, it's it's logically impossible. It's practically impossible. It's structurally, it's physically, whatever. The term. It's impossible, right? You cannot do it. So another thing is you have to understand why there was no inflation, so-called, before COVID and why it emerged. That's another big story. Um, I don't know how long you want me to speak, but uh, <laughs> the, 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 you, we have to understand that the lack of inflation before and the new inflation that occurred um, and there was a big misunderstanding. So during 2008, 9, 10, et cetera, 12, there was this big quantitative easing. The Federal Reserve and other central bank uh, poured a lot of liquidity in the system, which according to Friedman, you know, mechanically should have led to, to inflation. And it was a very interesting paradox or conundrum among my colleagues in economists and so on. How is it possible to have um, you know, what Friedman said, that inflation is always and only a monetary phenomenon. You have this monetary expansion of money to an extraordinary degree, right? And no inflation. So how to understand that? Well, first, yes, when the money goes to the purse of the household, you have inflation. The problem, so there are two aspects on this. The, the problem is that the money did not go to the pocket of the household. So they could not spend more. And inflation is the fact that, of course, you have not enough goods for too many consumers. So the money was staying at the level on the on the uh, on, on on banks, right? On the balance sheet of banks. So that's one uh, uh, reason. Another aspect is that when we say there was no inflation, it's not true. 
you know, I'm living in Zurich in 2007. Uh, an apartment was, let's say, 700,000. A few years later, it was 1.5 million. Okay, if I am the owner, I'm very happy with the capital gain. If I am a buyer, it's inflation. I have to pay twice as large, as much, you know, to buy the same thing. So inflation, the wrong concept is to think as a single number. Inflation is a multidimensional number. You have inflation for stock, inflation for real estate, inflation for food, inflation for energy. And of course, the policymakers bundle this into a single number, which is very misleading. So when we say there was inflation, it was actually a misnomer. There were a lot of inflation, indeed, because the money creation was directed to balance sheet of banks and to these assets, which indeed emerge as uh, extremely inflationary. And the last uh, dimension of this discussion of inflation was the globalization. Okay, so if wages are kept low due to global arbitrage, meaning Chinese uh, can produce at low cost and Vietnamese and so on, as a consequence, the, the workers in the West cannot negotiate higher wage. And so if you don't have higher wage, you don't have higher consumer you know, buying power. And therefore, you cannot buy more. Therefore, there is no more no, no inflation. Now, of course, COVID changed all this. And the Chinese-US trade war changed all, all this, right, with the deglobalization. And so inflation, which was misqualified or misdiagnosed by the Federal Reserve and also ECB and so on, as a transitory phenomenon, it was very clear for us of us more experts than the Fed that it was not a transitory phenomenon. It's a, it's a structural phenomenon coming from the destruction of this mechanism I just explained that explained why there was low inflation, at least in the, in the consumer basket. So this is a very important thing to keep. Just you see, when we start to think of all these issues, we cannot think linear. We cannot think monodimensional. Everything is entangled. We, we have to really see how things cascade on each other and are entangled and how the policymakers of course, they are aware of this, but they have really blunt tools, which are monodimensional, unfortunately, and they cannot solve these problems. So much more structural uh, solutions are required, but are costly politically, politically. So they will not be done. Yeah, unfortunately, it doesn't seem like it. So Didier, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Uh, my, my last question is, what is one message you like people to take away from our conversation? Yeah. Um, so I would say, you know, life is risk. Risk is life. So if for the young generation, I consider myself still young, right? You are young as much as you take risk and you want to go to ventures and to open your mind and to learn constantly is it's difficult these days, but to take risk, right? And I, I told you privately before, I think one, I call it the cancer of modern society, at least in the, in the West, is this hubris or this illusion that we can have a zero risk society i i said i saw it we saw it during the management of covid whatever it takes to save every life okay the consequence is the cascade an epidemic of all other illnesses in undiagnosed cancer in depression of the young in the cost for the lack of uh, intellectual development of the young generation from kindergarten to to school to high school to a student and so on so all these are only the consequence of this zero risk policy 
which is for me a nonsense. Life is risk, risk is life. That's my last message. And and I would like your editor to think about what is leading society, modern society, to hope to control our risks, while actually a booming, a striving society is one who proclaims failures as, you know, like in Silicon Valley for a while, as actually a measure of success. You fail, you fail, and then you finally succeed. You fail, you fail, you fail, you fail, you fail, and you succeed. The problem is that there are so many headwinds, again, the young, the less young, the the entrepreneurs, and so on. But we have to be courageous, and I hope that if enough of us keep this spirit, then whatever the policies, you know, bottom up, we can change the world and get a better world. Because otherwise, um, other people, other countries will do it. And it will be, and I see that the 21st century will be Asia and not us, European, US, the West, as we have known it in the 20th, uh, the 19th century and 20th century. And so also it's a kind of uh, existential um, point. Uh, you know, you, you are in London, uh, so your UK empire, you know, at the top of the, of the world uh, for the most of the 19th century, of the second half of the 19th century, to, of course, uh, our great pain as French. But uh, U.S. for the big part of the 20th century, no, the future will probably be Asia. And uh, our position in the West uh, will be depending on how much courage we have and uh, how much we can go out of complacency and go out of this zero risk mistake. Uh, well, I hope I gave him some, some, some clues, uh, no answers really, but some clues to ask questions. Right? That's the most important. Don't believe anything you hear in the media, all wrong, all manipulated. Um, you need to question by yourself, to dig by yourself, and to try to understand the mechanism. Myself, I will finish that here. You know, I am, I've been educated as a quantum and theoretical physicist by three Nobel Prize um, in, in France, in Paris, at École Normale Supérieure Rue d'Ulm. And um, I decided to go out of my comfort zone and to progressively learn. I, I became relatively well-known person of finance, person of earthquakes, person of many things. And why finance? Because finance is controlling the world. So you need to understand what is finance because otherwise you are a sheep and you are going to be exploited. And this is a big project of mine in the future is to develop teaching program to empower everyone. Otherwise, you are under control of the big uh, financial institution and the, the big policymakers who exploit your naivety with respect to finance. So voila. So make the effort to learn and uh, maybe um, you can succeed for sure. Yeah, perfect. That was some great messages. So thank, thanks so much, Didier. I really appreciate it. If anyone wanted to find out more about your work and keep keep up to date with what you're doing, where would the best places for that be? Ah, you can go on my website at ET Zurich. Uh, so it's a emeritus website, so, but you can see a lot of resources there on many fields. Um, and that's it. And also on the SSRN, social network, um, social science network, where all my papers go. And also on the the Cornell Los Alamos website, you know, where we put our archive uh, preprint. So that, and then hopefully in the future, we're going to develop, um, um, let's say, a global website for financial crisis observatory where we are going to continue our diagnostic of the crisis in finance in various domains. But my transition from ETH to Shenzhen makes it a bit longer than I expect, and uh, but I hope we'll succeed eventually. 
yeah perfect sounds great so i'll put that in the description below but thanks so much for your time thank you thank you so much for listening and if you enjoyed the episode please subscribe so you're notified when new podcasts are released i hope you're leaving with some great value about investing trading and finance see you on the next show